All right, well, as they make their way that way, we're going to remain in here and look at God's Word this morning together. And just to let you know, I'm still, you know, a couple weeks ago finished up Philippians. Last week I preached on baptism. We are having a baptismal service on December 7th. We've worked it out, so we're going to actually have it in here for the very first time. Um, we don't mind having it in the hardened swimming pool, the Bundy swimming pool, or other places at the beach, but we thought it'd be neat to have it here on a Sunday morning, and uh, we're going to be doing that on December 7th. Uh, so mark your calendar. If you are interested, interested in following the Lord uh, in baptism on that day, please let me or Jared know uh, so we can talk to you about that and we can follow through with uh, that uh, um, great time of celebration um, as you honor the Lord in that way. And if you have questions about that, you can talk to me and Jared too just about what baptism is, what it means, what the Bible teaches about it. If you'd like to go listen to the sermon, it's online from last week and I, I, I try to cover as much as I possibly can. Maybe you'll have more questions and again, we're glad to to uh, get out God's word and look at what it has to say about baptism with you. But I'm, I'm still praying through, thinking through what am I going to do next, right? And you're all, and it looks like I'm probably going to go to the Old Testament. It's been a while since it's been in the Old Testament. It's kind of looking for one of the minor prophets. So excited about that, getting the prophets. And with that, I'll be able to hopefully give you some backdrops so that as you read any of the prophets, you'll be able to put them in the right context and not misinterpret them, which happens so often with the prophets. We forget where they are. We just, just kind of in the back of the Bible, back of the Old Testament, there's sticky pages, and we don't read them a lot, and we don't really see what, how they fit into the history, so I'm going to try to do that as well. And, but in the meantime, probably do a few psalms uh, leading up to Thanksgiving uh, time, and, and uh, uh, Jared and I will be talking about maybe something we're going to do in December as well. So probably won't start a new exposition of an entire book until the first of the year. So you guys keep praying. If you've got one of those Old Testament prophets or kind of your favorite devotional material, just let me know, and maybe we'll go there. I doubt anybody this for some of your favorite devotional material, but hopefully after we go through it, it will be, because uh, they are exciting. But um, I thought this morning uh, we'd take a look at a passage of Scripture that's probably ministered to me uh, more times in a greater way than any other passage of Scripture. And that hasn't, sometimes one passage of Scripture will minister to me just as great as this one does, but not as many times as this one has in my life. So we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Now, let me ask you a question. Five and a half years ago, I began the study of James. Uh, it was April, uh, five and a half years ago. I, I went back and looked. So it's been five and a half years since I preached this passage. How many of you all were here five and a half years ago when I began to teach through James? Okay, a few of you. All right. So let me just warn you two, those who are here, I'm doing three messages in one. I'm going to do 1 through 8, and, and 5 through 8 is really going to get neglected. I can just tell you that already. Uh, th but I actually did three messages on these 1 through 8, and I felt like I still didn't give them the justice that they deserved. But I'm going to try to do one message, Lord willing, through all eight of these verses, uh, beginning in James. And, I want to, and the reason why is I want to see, especially 5 through 8, I want to show you how they connect. And then as you, you can go back and study more in depth, but it's real important. James is not just disconnected when he's beginning this. And often, the, especially 5 through 8, are not taken in the right context, and we miss the blessing of what James is trying to get across to us uh, in, in this passage because we just kind of cut it off after verse 4, and we really miss out um, on all that God has for us there. But, um, so open your Bibles there to the book of James. It's after the book of Hebrews, toward the, the latter part of the New Testament. And uh, so if you're there with me, I'm going to read through the first eight verses, and we're going to pray together. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like a surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come to our time of uh, public worship together as your people, um, where we look at your word. We listen to your voice that comes from your word, and we, we pray, Lord, you would make our hearts acceptable to your word, that we would receive what you had to say to us this morning, Lord, that you would change us where we need to be changed, challenge us where we need to be challenged, comfort us where we need to be comforted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and Lord, you know where we all are, and we pray that you would take your word and minister it uh, to each of us in just the right way. We trust you to do that now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I think about trials, one of the first uh, people that always comes to mind because it's related to another uh, thing in my life is a guy named Horatio Spafford. You ever heard of Horatio Spafford? Many, many of you all have. Um, Spafford had uh, many peaceful and happy days, lived in Chicago, successful attorney in Chicago. He was a father of four daughters. He was an active member of the church. He was a loyal friend and supporter of D.L. Moody. Uh, we have Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which is named after D.L. Moody, a tremendous evangelist in the United States and even traveled overseas. But he was a great friend of D.L. Moody. Uh, then some things began to happen that were very difficult for Horatio Spafford. Uh, just some calamities in his life, starting with the great fire of Chicago, uh, 1871. Wiped out his uh, family's extensive um, uh, real estate investments they had all over Chicago. And when Mr. Moody uh, and his associate, Ira Sankey, left for Great Britain for, Great Britain for an evangelistic campaign, he, um, uh, Horatio Spafford thought it would be good to go and accompany them and take his family just for a vacation. They'd been had some, such heartache and hardship for a few years. So he said, I'm going to take my whole family over there, and we're going to go to this evangelistic meeting. Uh, but something came up, and it, and it detained him, a business thing, and, and he sent his, his wife and his four daughters over uh, to Great Britain ahead of him. He was going to meet back up with them. Uh, well, uh, when on their way over on the SS Ville du Havre, um, uh, they, they ran into another ship. And in 12 minutes, their ship sank. And he received a telegram from his wife, saved alone. His four daughters had perished at sea. So when he... In November of 1873, became, uh, uh, began his journey over uh, there and, uh, on another ship uh, to join his wife in Wales. Uh, when the ship passed across the approximate place where the other ship had gone down, Spafford's faith was made evident as he penned the words of the song of my favorite hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the first verse says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now what would cause a man who just lost his four daughters and many things before that say in the midst of these, this, these sorrows that are dwelling up in his life cause him to say it is well with my soul? 
Well, probably many things. But I believe with all my heart that Horatio Spafford understand the, understood the truths in the first part of James. And that these principles and these truths in the Word of God sustained him not only then but through the rest of his life to continue to serve the Lord and be able to say in the deepest and darkest hours of his life it is well with my soul. I believe that. And I believe this morning if, even if you've studied these, this passage before if you haven't the, the, the truths here can sustain us in the deepest, darkest hours of our days. I'm telling you, this passage, as I said, has ministered to me personally more than any other passage in all of Scripture. Multiple times. I could tell you story after story. And, 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 I, and I know the Lord. Um, I had a pretty easy life, really. I didn't have a lot of heartache um, growing up. My grandparents lived into their 90s. I didn't lose my grandparents. Just both of them just a few years ago, all three of them that were living when I was born. And when I was here, People didn't, I didn't have all these difficulties really come in my life. And then I went to college, and there was difficulties, different kinds of trials. And I was challenged to memorize the book of James because it made me, it made me a better student. <laughs> I don't know if that was the greatest uh, motivation, but I memorized the book of James. And it seemed that, that at every turn, every six months, there was some kind of trial. And I'm thankful I memorized the book of James. And I've never forgotten these verses and how they minister to me. My prayers will do the same to you this morning so uh, that's why that's why you know these verses this morning and I also would say that in this past year there's been a, a lot of uh, I've encountered various kinds of trials um, in the last year as James calls them uh, and, and I just need to be reminded of this truth myself I needed my heart to be renewed and be, be, be encouraged and be challenged to do what God has to say and my prayer is that you will as well so um, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these first eight verses. And we're, as we look at this, we're going to look at three big truths. There's multiple, when I did this, the outline was super long and detailed. It's not going to be real super long and detailed because we don't have time this morning. But there's three major truths, important truths, here in these eight verses uh, concerning the test of trials in order that we might handle trials in a way that honors the Lord and get the most out of them. So let's begin there in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. I preached on that verse for 30 minutes last time. I'm going to give it 30 seconds this time, okay? James, a half-brother of Jesus. Half-brother of Jesus because they had the same mother but not the same father. Um, uh, he, he, he writes to mainly Jewish followers living outside of Jerusalem who were dispersed and scattered um, because of the persecution under Herod Agrippa in Acts 12. You can read about that later if you want to write that Acts 12. This gives us some context. Uh, these people had trials from within and from without. Um, and they were immature in their faith. And you see that as you read the book of James. And they needed instruction how to become mature in dealing with trials. And so he starts with trials. There's other things he deals with as well with maturity for these believers. So the first thing James tackles, I told you 30 seconds right there, record for chapter, verse 1, right? Uh, the first thing he deals with concerning trials is, uh, and the first truth we want to look at here in this passage is the response to trials, the proper response to trials. Um, how do you respond to trials? When trials come your way, when difficulty comes your way, how do you respond to those trials? Now, uh, We'll see this later as big and small trials. And I can just tell you this, that last Monday when I got the call that um, uh, my surgery was going to be postponed, I was a little frustrated, wasn't I, sweetie? 
<coughs> and uh, she saw my frustration, and she lovingly rebuked me as her as as my wife. She didn't rebuke me, but she did. She said, "Sweetie, the Lord knows what's going on. He's he's in control of this. And obviously, he doesn't want you to have this tomorrow." I didn't want to hear that. No, I want it tomorrow. I plan my whole week around this thing, and I need. I, and maybe this is why I need to preach this thing to get to remind me that this is all the Lord's deal, and He wants me to grow through this. He wants to do something in me in this. So I can tell you right now. I mean, I, I did, your pastor. Blew it on Monday for about 30 seconds there. I was just not in a good heart and, and to my loving wife. Um, empowered by the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. Uh, reminded me how I needed to respond to uh, trials. But many people respond in anger. They respond in bitterness. They give up. They complain. They respond with fear. They respond with surprise. They, they respond with depression and denial, on and on and on. Well, how would James call the original recipients of this letter to respond to trials how would he do it well we find our answer there in verse 2 consider it all the joy my brethren when you encounter various trials now that seems an odd way to uh, exhort someone in the midst of their deepest darkest trial in their life consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials are you kidding me james and i love what um kent hughes he's a pastor college retired pastor college church of wheaton uh, up in the chicago area he, he says this how nice, a letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. I love that. And, and, and if you don't see where James is going, that's exactly what, Are you kidding me? Respond with joy in the midst of my trials? I mean, you've lost it. Well, on the surface, it almost seems cavalier that, that James would write this. Uh, but as we, we study these verse and the ones following, we discover that James is not Pastor Wacko, uh, nor is he cavalier, and he's not promoting giddiness. Not at all. So let's look at this first phrase here in verse 2. Consider it all joy. The first thing we must understand that this is an imperative. This is a command. This is not an option. It's a command. James commands them, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do this, to consider it all joy, to consider it pure joy, your translation may say. <clears throat> Since this is the case, then what in the world does it mean to consider it all joy? What does that mean? Well, let's look, let's look at the meaning here, the, the words that contain this phrase. Uh, the word consider or the word count, your translation may say, it says, means to regard as. It's a mental evaluation adopted as a result of due deliberation. You've looked at the situation. You've made a mental evaluation. You've made a conscious embrace of the situation. So James is saying that we need to make a deliberate decision to embrace the trials that God brings our way with an attitude of joy. Now, is that even possible? Is that not possible? Well, obviously you'd say, well, it's possible because he commands us to do it, right? And, and, and we also should know it because we just studied the book of Philippians. And Paul, when he's writing to this church at Philippi, in prison, uses the word joy seven times and the word rejoice eight times in his letter to the church at Philippi. And I would say a great way to summarize uh, this is found in Philippians 4.4. 4. Do we have my... Yeah, here it's back, sorry. <clears throat> Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Paul writes this as he's in prison. So can you rejoice? Can you consider it all joy when you count on various trials? Yes, first of all, we, we know we can because we're commanded to do it. Second of all, we, we know Paul did it. And he did it over and over again. I could have showed you more examples um, but this is the condensed version, so I'll show you one. Uh, it's not only possible to consider it joy, 
It's also the only proper response to trials for the Christian when God places you in a trial. Did you hear me? It's the only proper response to trials when God places you in a trial. Did you catch that? Who places us in the trial? God does. We can't miss that. Some people, well, only Satan. You know, anything bad happening, that's all Satan. He's the one in control now. Hogwash. That's not biblical at all. You go read the book of Job. Yeah, Satan's involved in that particular one. But who's the one allowing it? It's God either causes or allows all things to happen. Satan's not on any kind of throne. We never, just don't, for, please don't forget that. And it's amazing when he uses it in these eight verses on trials, do you see Satan ever mentioned in it? Never. Ever. God is the one who either leads us into or allows tests to, to come into our lives. I mean, you just go back, and I, and, I, and I spent probably a half an hour doing this last time I preached on this passage. But you go back in the Old Testament. Abraham and Isaac, right? When he, he says, offer up your son Isaac. And the beginning of the chapter said, God tested him. Who tested him? God tested him. You go through all the, 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 the wilderness wonders and Israelites over and over said, and God tested them. Who tested them? God tested them. God is the one in control of trials. That's good news, isn't it? Because we know the heart of God. We know that he loves us. He wants the best for us. So God is in control of trials. We cannot miss that. Now, Knowing that God is the one in, 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 in control of trials it gives us a clue that God's got a purpose, right? He's not going nowhere with trials. It's not just, oh, see, I'll make him suffer a little bit. This will be fun. No, not at all. And if that's your view of God, my prayer is that your view of God will change. That is not why he puts us through trials. And we're going to see this purpose in verses 3 and 4 in just a few minutes. But whatever, uh, um, whether we know the purpose or not, just knowing that God's involved should bring us comfort. Now look at the words all or pure joy. The word all means suffering is not the occasion for all the joy there is. Now all the joy you have in your life, it should all well up in the midst of suffering. That's not what he's saying. Okay? The, 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 but it, it's joy should be the only reaction not mixed with others to suffering. The word here, pure or, or all, is unalloyed. It's not mixed with other things. So it's singular. It's not joy and, it's joy. And he's saying it's, it's, it's a singular focus in the midst of trial, joy. Now notice the phrase, uh, my brethren, or your translation may say brothers. It's a term for Christians. He commands them in love as a friend. He doesn't come in with the attitude, well, suck it up, you bunch of wimps. Can't you handle the trials? Come on! Just, just pull yourself up by the and get through it. No, he doesn't, and we shouldn't either. When people are in the midst of trials, that's not should be, oh, come on, God's involved in this, you'll be okay. No. There's a love, there's, I mean, he tells them the truth, but it's in love, and it's just compassion here. Not as a jerk. It's the best word I could find. That's the only other way to do it. Either as a jerk, or you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Two different ways. Let's turn our attention here to the, to the last half. When you encounter various trials. Notice that word when, or whenever. Notice it doesn't say if you encounter various trials. There, there, there's there, there's uh, another word here that strengthens this word when, and it's the word encounter. Your translation may say face or meet or fall into or experience. That's about five different translations. I try to look at a bunch of them because we have different ones in here, and 
there's a, but the word, this word, whatever it is in your translation, has the idea of being surrounded as if there's no escape from trials. It's going to happen. You can't escape trials. You encounter them, you face them, you fall into, you experience, you meet them all around you. They're unavoidable. And the fact that trials are a sure thing in the life of a Christian is all throughout the Scripture, all throughout the New Testament. I can give you a bunch of verses. I'll only give you one this morning. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. He says, don't be surprised. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He said, don't go, you've got to be kidding me. There's a trial in my life. I can't believe this. He says, don't be surprised. It's just part of walking with Christ. And I'd rather be walking with Christ through suffering and difficulty and without him. Because the reality is suffering and difficulty are reality in everyone's life. Well, now look verse 2 at the word trials. All right? It means to put to the test. It's the same word, actually, in verse 13 of chapter 1 for temptation. Now, um, the context dictates the English translation to whether it's t- trials or temptation, but it, it's testing being dictated toward an end. It's going somewhere. Now I know when you maybe you all think about tests, you're thinking they don't go anywhere because I take them at school. I mean, what does geometry have to do with anything, right? Well, ask Gary. It has a lot to do with a lot of things, doesn't it, Gary? Yeah. What in the world is this? chemistry there we go have to do with anything in this world we got uh, ryan he's a chemist it's all if some people has something to do with things right but most time we think that has nothing to do with anything but be sure the word test here in the greek means it has something to do with something it's going somewhere it's not meaningless now i've taken some meaningless tests in my life i will say that but this is not one of them so here we we know the end is good because god is the one who brought the trial or the test Maybe it's to test the maturity of someone or even the genuineness of our faith. And James does a lot of that in James. Now, you can't play, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, okay, proof's in the pudding, right? And he, go, he gets right down in our grill in, in the middle of our life and really has us examine our life later on in the book. But the trials spoken here are not mere irritations. Oh, my team lost yesterday. My, the Steeders are playing today and they're going to lose. That's not a trial. That's, that's not an irritation. But the real adversity, it, it is an irritation, but this, the trial is not an irritation. It's a real adversity. It's a difficulty. It's affliction. It's calamity that are hard to bear. And they can come from persecution or just part of life. It has nothing to do with persecution. It's just part of life. Also, no, the notice the word various or many kinds, multicolored, diverse, uh, there's a variety and you think about joseph's coat of many colors actually in the septuagint the greek translation the old testament this is the word used for his coat of many colors it's varied james readers were most likely experienced poverty sickness loneliness bereavement disappointment persecution all these things they're various kind of trials so trials they come in all shapes and sizes and sometimes they come in ways that you least suspect and we've got to be ready for all of them so what trial has God placed in your life? Maybe you're walking through a trial right now. I don't know. I know some people are in our body. Maybe some are that I don't know. Is it your health, your job, relationship? Whatever it is, God calls us through James chapter 1, verse 2, to consider it all joy. We're called to make a deliberate decision to embrace trials that God brings our way with an attitude of joy. Uh, notice what one commentator says 
concerning this. This is important. This is um, Edmund Hebert. He says he did not say they must feel all joy or that trials are all joy. Please understand that. You may not feel joy. He says consider them joy. And we're going to see why here in a second. And that they are joy. It's the trial is not joy, the joy. It's what God wants to do in the trial that's the joy. Feelings cannot dictate our decision to choose joy. By God's grace, let's be people who obey the Lord and consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Now remember the word trials here. Again, it's, it, it means to put to test or dictated toward end. It's moving somewhere. In other words, trials are not meaningless. They have a purpose. And that brings us to the second truth in our passage concerning trials. Um, in fact, it's in the second truth about trials. It gives us hope in carrying out the command of properly responding to trials by considering all joy. And that second truth is the purpose in trials. The purpose in trials. The purpose in trials answers the question, why are we to consider it all joy? Or how in the world can we consider it all joy? Have you looked at my trial? So the, this purpose answers those questions for us. After all, this response to consider all joy is not what anyone in the world will ever tell you to do in the mix of a trial. The world doesn't tell you to do this. It tells you to get bitter. It tells you to, to, to complain. It tells you to jump ship in the midst of the trial. It doesn't tell you to consider it all joy. And many times our emotions tell us what the world wants to tell us, right? We can't listen to our emotions, our feelings. We have to listen to the truth. We need to be reminded why and, and how can we consider it all joy. We need to understand the purpose in the trial. So if we understand that, then we, we can do what the Lord commands. We're going to have a lot better opportunity to do what the Lord commands. And thankfully, God, through James, tells us how we can consider it all joy here in verses 3 and 4. So let's examine these verses and discover what is the purpose in trials. Begin by look at verse 3, the first word there, knowing, or because you know, when translation says. Uh, it's knowledge grounded in personal experience. It's not just information. Please understand that this is knowledge grounded in personal experience. The word's also in the present tense which points to the fact that they were not ignorant of the truth being taught here. He says, you know. You know. You know this already. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You've already experienced this. I'm just reminding you, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And the present tense also points to the fact that they will adopt the attitude being commanded here of joy. Then they will continually come to know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Not only have they known, but they will continue to know if they adopt this attitude of joy. James wants these believers and us to know that an aspect of the purpose in trials is that testing your faith produces endurance. And as we'll see, knowing this is a good thing and begins the process of understanding the deeper purpose in trials, which in turn can help the, the original recipients and us to obey the command to consider it all joy. So let's look, look further define what's... what's what we're supposed to be knowing here. He says, you know something. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, what's that mean? Well, let's consider the word endurance. Uh, your translation may say steadfastness, perseverance, patience. This is many people's favorite word that have been here for a while when we went through the book of James and all of the book of James. It is the word hupomene. Now, it's just a funny word, isn't it? And it's a powerful word. And then when I said, oh, Miss Agnes reminds me of this all the time. I wish she was here this morning. Agnes, oh, Brian, I'm, I'm trying to hoop o'mene. 
I said, well, you keep it up, Agnes. And she just never forgot that word. And I, I guess I'll never forget it because it reminded me. But the word means to, it, it's, it's the word hoople, which is under, okay, and mene or meno, which depends on your, your, your what uh, voice this is in. But the, the, meno means to stay. So to stay under, abide, remain under is what this means. It's, it's bear, being under a heavy load and resolutely staying there instead of trying to escape the load. Edmund Hebert also um, gives a great definition of this word. It's that, that tenacity of spirit which holds up under pressure while awaiting God's time for dismissal of the test or, his re- or for his reward. Another good word to help describe endurance, I think, is toughness. It's the quality of being able to tough it out instead of quitting. That's really what it is. Now, I shared this illustration before five and a half years ago. I'm going to share it again because I think it's one of the best illustrations, at least for me to understand what is hoople many. What does it mean develops endurance to perseverance? What does that mean? Now, I used to, I used to lift a lot of heavy weights, uh, and I don't do that anymore. Obviously, my shoulders are falling apart. I can just barely lift James without pain now, right? But now he's getting bigger, but he's not a heavyweight, I'd say. Um, and, and, but with that, I'm always fascinated. I knew how much I could lift, and it's pretty, it was a lot, but I would like these guys, the world's strongest men. I mean, they've got buildings and stuff. I mean, these guys are unbelievable, and I enjoy watching that still, don't I, sweetie? Ever since we've been married, I mean, around Christmas time, they, they replay all of them, like all the, you've seen it, it's unbelievable. These guys are just massive. There's one guy now in the United States, he's six foot nine. he's 420 pounds. It's just, he could, hardly, he could never fit through that. They're just huge. It's just all muscle. And they just lift. And my favorite, one of my favorite things in, that they do is they do the car walk. And they do it every year. And they get underneath this car. And it, I don't know what it weighs. It may weigh 2,000 pounds. It probably weighs 2,000 pounds. So they get in. And they strap in. They stand in, up. It has no bottom in it. And they, they, they carry this thing like 60 meters or something crazy. Like 2,000 pounds on their back. Now, you can see some of them start to wobble, you know, the small guys that weigh 350. And, and, and they begin to wobble, and, and then some of them can't make it all the way. And they don't hoopomene. They don't remain under the weight all the way to the end. And some of the guys, they do. They remain under the weight all the way to the end. And that's the picture, that we remain under the weight all the way to the end. That's what it means to hoopomene. That's what it means to develop endurance, to persevere. That's the picture, and I'll, I'll never forget that. You may not either. Now, we do want to be able to bear up under the weight, not of a car, but of a trial, a heavy load, and resolutely stay there while you wait for God to lift it. If so, then you know what it is that will begin to produce endurance in you, what will begin to produce this quality of hupomene, the quality of endurance in your life. Look with me now at this word, testing a means or instrument of testing to purify or refine. It explains the purpose of trials mentioned in verse 2. And this word was used when referring to refining of silver or gold. Guess what's involved in refining silver or gold? Fire. James says this fiery trial, right? Fire is involved. And it burns the dross away. The impurities. To purify the gold. To, to purify the silver. And notice again in verse 3, what is being tested? What this fire is doing, what is testing? It's your faith that's being tested. He's implying that these are believers. He's referring to their faith in Christ. So trials are meant to test our faith in Christ for the purpose of burning away the dross and impurities in our life. As one person put it, trials work for the believer, not against him. Isn't that good news? The trials work for us and not against us. 
It's important that we be reminded again that it's God that places these trials in our life for the purpose of testing our faith. And since God is the one who tests us, we know he does it for our good. And in fact, God doesn't only bring the test, but he gives us the grace to endure. Isn't that amazing? God, he gives us something just impossible to do, consider it all joy, and then he gives us the grace to do it. Uh, you see this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, and I, and I have this in parentheses there, trial, because it's the exact same word. Okay? No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. You're not the only one going through it. And God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able? But with a temptation will provide the way of escape also, so as you will be able to hupomene it. It's a word. Endure it. God tests us to produce endurance and then ensures that we will endure. You can't beat that anywhere. That's unbelievable. He wants to produce this in us and he assures that it will happen in us. Now notice the next word in, in verse 3 that helps us understand the purpose of trials. Produces or develops or worketh, the King James says. It means to work out until it's accomplished. It, it produces, it's also in the present tense indicating this is a process. It's not an instant, boom, you got it now. Not at all. It's a process. It, it takes time. And, and the fact that producing endurance is the process is further stated in, in this and th- these words in verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result, or, or perseverance must finish its work or have its full effect. It's also a present imperative. It's a command. And he reminds them that this, in this present imperative, to let endurance have its perfect result. I love that. Let. You, you gotta, there's an action here you need to take. You've you got to let it. It's a warning not to allow the chain of events to be interrupted that produce endurance. Don't cut it off. Don't jump ship in the midst of the storm. Stay on the ship. Remember Paul told uh, these people, he's going to Rome. The ship going to get there, they're going to, they're going to run into a ground and they're all going to die and they're wanting to jump ship. He said, if anybody jumps ship, we all die. Nobody will be survived. You stay on the ship. And, and James saying, stay on the ship. Let it have its perfect result. If you drop the class now, guess what you got to do to graduate? You've got to take it again later. So you might as well stay in the class. The dangers of interrupting the process are illustrated uh, by the boy who found a, a, a moss cocoon. He notices that there's a, a little hole in the cocoon of this moth. And, and it was struggling to get out. So he thought he would come along and he would open the, the, the hole up a little bit more so that that moth could to get out. And sure enough, it was a lot easier for the moth to get out. But it fell straight through the ground. It couldn't fly anymore. It couldn't fly because it didn't struggle to develop the strength in its wings to be able to fly. He thought he was doing a good thing. And sometimes we think we're doing a good thing. Hey, if I can just get out from all this difficulty, I'll be better. You won't. You'll, you're short-circuiting what God wants to do in your life when you do that. We don't want to get out from that. And he makes sure he stresses the fact that the work of developing endurance is a process, not an instant accomplishment. That we must, and, and where we must interrupt the process. Now, unfortunately, we don't like to hear that, do we? We want instant now. We got fast food, right? We got faster internet. Who would ever want to have dial-up now, right? Who would want to wait for that, right? We got fast everything. We don't. We don't want to wait for anything. We want it all now. Remember, it took Abraham. He waited and endured 25 years for Isaac to come. But Moses basically endured for 80 years before he was used of God. 80 years. Two periods of 40 years. 
And soon after Apostle Paul becomes a Christian, the Lord sent him away to Arabia between 13 and 17 years. 13, 17 years, he puts Paul on the shelf before he uses him. Wow, I don't want to wait for that. And aren't you glad the Lord Jesus Christ let endurance have its perfect result? Look what it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have a great, so great power of witnesses surrounding us, let's also lay aside every incumbent and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run endurance with the races set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured, hupomene, the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured. He didn't jump ship. Uh, you know, guys, I'm kidding. I'm really not God. I'm not really God in the flesh. I'm getting out of this. Sorry, God, I, I know that you wanted me to die on the cross, but it's too tough. He didn't. And because he didn't, you and I now can know him as our Savior. We can know the God of all the earth and be reconciled with him because he endured. He didn't jump ship. Do you want endurance that God has designed for you to have its perfect work? Is that your desire? I think we'd all say, yeah, I do. Then know that it will not come from reading a book, listening to a sermon, or praying a prayer. But it will come as we learn to trust God in our trials. Now, all those things might help, and they will help. But it will come. You'll really learn. You'll produce endurance as you trust God in your trial. Stay in it until he is finished with what he has desired to come. And I noticed the, 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 the phrase perfect result or perfect work or per, full effect, finished, finish its work. And this points to the fact that, that, that endurance is not the perfect result. Listen to this. That's not the ultimate goal. It's part of it. It gets us there. It brings about the result or the ultimate purpose in trials. What then is the perfect result of endurance or the ultimate purpose in trials? It's recorded for us in the last phrase, uh, last part of verse 4. So that you may be perfect and complete. Here's so that. Here's the purpose. You want to produce endurance. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the ultimate purpose in trials. And what does it mean to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Well, the word perfect or mature, uh, it doesn't mean a sinless perfection, but instead denotes a maturity, a ripeness, a richness in our life. Uh, Warren Wiersbe helps us understand this word when he writes, God's goal for our lives and maturity would be a tragedy if our children remain little babies. We enjoy watching them mature, even through, though maturity brings dangers as well as delights. Many Christians sell themselves from the trials of life, and as a result, they never grow up. He wants us to grow up, to be mature. So what does it look like to be mature? What does this kind of maturity that James speaks of look like? I believe the following verse is one of many verses that describes this maturity that James speaks of. And it's found in Ephesians 4.13. Until all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ, Maturity is Christ-likeness. That's what maturity is. Maturity equals Christ-likeness. He wants to make us more like his son. And as we endure, as we let endurance through trials have their perfect result, it will make us more like Jesus. I want to be made more like Jesus. So whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it takes, I want to be made more like Jesus. And guess what? He promises he's going to make us more like Jesus. So you can't opt out on the trial. He's, he loves us that much. Now notice the word complete. It's the word wholeness. And this just gives more strength to this understanding of being more like Jesus. This, 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 it's a well-roundedness. Um, uh, that, that we become more mature in all areas. That's what he's trying to convey here. Not just some. Uh, consider uh, these words 
Um, when we think about the word lacking in nothing, which is the next thing, not lacking in maturity or any of the graces of Christian life, what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace, of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself protect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What a great promise. The ultimate purpose in trials is that we would become more and more like Christ in every single area of our life. So knowing the purpose in trials helps us to carry out the proper response to trials, right? Now, when he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, when we know what's coming next, we can, we, we, we can do that. Oh, okay. I'm going to count. I'm going I'm, I'm to embrace these things with an attitude of joy that are difficult in my life. Why? Because I know what God's going to do in them. He's going to make me more like Jesus. And I want that. So I'll consider it joy, Lord. doesn't mean that. It means deep down there's just settled peace and joy in our heart because we know what God's getting ready to do. He's going to make us more like his son. I think Jerry Bridges sums up this passage well when he writes, It's not the adversity considered in itself that is to be the ground for our joy. Rather, it is the expectation of the results, the development of our character that should cause us to rejoice in adversity. God does not ask us to rejoice because we have lost our job or a loved one has been stricken with cancer or a child has been born with incurable birth defect. But he does, t- does tell us to rejoice because we believe he is in control of these circumstances and is at work through them for our ultimate good. That's why we consider it all joy. He's for us. And when we understand God's purpose in our trials, we'll be able to fully and joyfully and confidently say with Charles Spurgeon, I've learned to kiss the waves that slap me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the waves that slap me against Jesus. That's what he's saying. The call to consider it all joy in the midst of trials and endure because you know that God is using them to conform you more and more image of Christ is not easy to fulfill. Who would say, oh, that's easy. I can do that all the time. No problem. Well, I, I tell you that, I blew it this week. Probably more than just the other day. And if you're honest, you probably do too. It's hard. It's easier said than done. And the Lord knows that, so he continues to speak to us through James. And this is, where I'm, this is going to be the quickest exposition of these four, five, six, seven, and eight than you've ever heard. All right? Just because of time. But I want to see how, show you how they connect really quick, quickly, then we'll be done. Uh, the prayer in trials. So we have the, 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 the um, proper response to trials, the purpose in trials, and now the prayer in trials. It says, but if anyone lacks wisdom, verse 5, let him ask of God. James calls these believers to prayer. And, and, and it's a command. Ask is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. You need to pray. It's also in the present tense, an ongoing prayer. Lord, I need your help all the time. I'm praying. And why is he calling these um, believers to pray, like I said, because they lack wisdom. And, and the, the, you don't have time to explain this all to you, but the, 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 the part of speech this is and the grammar here, it doesn't say you might lack wisdom. It's, it's, it's actually first, it, it, it's a first class condition means you do lack wisdom and you know it. You, you need to ask God, well, in what do they lack wisdom? Notice the last phrase in verse 4, lacking in nothing. Then look at verse 5, but if any of you lacks, see the connection? Wisdom what kind of wisdom? The wisdom to see trials from God's perspective. That's what this prayer is not. You've got to test. If anyone has wisdom, ask of God and he'll help you pass the test tomorrow in algebra. That's not it. No, it is talking about tests or connection, but you ask him wisdom to see the trials, these tests from his perspective. Amazing. That's the connection. Pray about it. 
pray for wisdom look, look what it says and then it says and then ask of who God ask God for this wisdom and wisdom is just this understanding of how to apply truth and God gives us the wisdom to supply these, apply these things in our life and then he goes on and says ask God who gives generously and without reproach I mean he, you, think, you, you think you're a giver you're nothing compared to God because no one can outgive God He's so generous, you can't even imagine. He says, without reproach. It means this. He doesn't, with, it's, it's a word to not rebuke. When you come to him, Lord, I'm coming again because, you know, I'm really struggling with this difficulty in my life. And I, I know I'm not seeing it. You're seeing it, so help me do that. He didn't go, are you kidding me? You came last with the same request. Get out of here. Not God. Now, we might do that. Without reproach, without rebuke. He says, come on, I'm going to keep giving. I'm going to overflow. And it says it will be given to him. It says, but if you ask, but he must ask without doubting. For the one who doubts like the surface sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And basically what James, real quickly, James is saying here is that when you ask him to give you wisdom to see trials and perspective, expect he'll come through in a big way. Don't doubt him. Don't doubt what God has promised. Don't be double-minded. It means two-souled. That one soul, yeah, I'm trusting your God, but you know, I'm not sure if God can come through. That's not the picture here. The picture is all in, completely focused. Just like God is focused solely on meeting our need in this area, he wants to focus solely on on receiving what he gives to meet our need in this area. Five through eight, there it was. The prayer and trials. I encourage you to study that more. There's some amazing things. I'm flipping through seven pages of notes right now to get to the bottom. I'm kidding. Um, So how how do we respond in trials in our life? And I trust by God's grace that we'll be considering it all joy. Well, how will we be able to do this? Well, knowing that the testing of faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Well, that's easier said than done. Well, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. There it is. That's how we respond to trials. That's how we can respond to trials. But when you lose this per- perspective, just keep crying out to God and trust him to come through. And the following poem is helpful to remind us of God's purpose in bringing trials in our lives. I love this. I'll end with this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while this tor- his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands how he bends but never breaks when, he, when his good he undertakes how he uses wh- whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him but every act, act induces him to try his splendor out God knows what he's all about God loves us and he brings us trials because he loves us And my prayer is you know this wonderful God who gave himself for you, who endured to the end so that you might be forgiven and free and be made right with his son. And those of us who have already been made right with his son, and don't we have a wonderful God? I stand amazed at the presence of Jesus as your man. He loves me so much. How wonderful, how marvelous is his love for me let's pray lord thank you so much for your word thank you for this these these amazing practical verses in james chapter 1 verses 4 1 through 8 that give us hope 
remind us why are all these difficulties? Why do difficulties just keep springing up in our lives? It's because you love us. And you want to make us more like Jesus. You want to refine us. Well, may we embrace that truth. And when we have a hard time understanding that, hard time embracing that truth, Lord, help us cry out to you and expect you to come through in a big way. And we pray this in Jesus' name.